welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are doing Murder is Easy. I suppose we should, before diving right in, talk a little bit about the publication history. This one was first published by, of course, Collins Crime Club in June of 1939, and then in the U.S. in September of the same year under the title Easy to Kill. I will also note this is another case where apparently the U.S. and U.K. editions are different. We came across that in three-act tragedy, and we're going to see it again in The Moving Finger. It's not all that significant here because apparently what happened is that the U.S. publishers were relying on the serialized version when they compiled it for the book publication, and there had been a lot of stuff that had been cut for length. I gotta say, I kind of wish I read the shorter U.S. version because there certainly are a lot of characters and a lot of incidents within the story, but we will talk about that. We will. Since we have so many characters to talk about, I guess we should jump right on into the victim, and that is Miss Lavinia Pinkerton. And she's uh, an elderly lady, and she's traveling to London to speak with Scotland Yard about a serial killer in her village, like one does. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Unfortunately, after she disembarks that train, she's run down by a car in Whitehall before making it to Scotland Yard headquarters. Right. And while Lavinia Pinkerton is our first victim to die within the pages of this book, and our main victim in that her death is the catalyst for the mystery that follows... We have six other victims in this novel, which I believe is the most deaths we've had thus far in a Christie novel, though it will of course be bested in her very next novel, and then there were none. So we're going to leave it at Lavinia Pinkerton for now, but just know that while she's on this train, she references four previous deaths in her small village of Witchwood under Ash, namely those of Miss Amy Gibbs, Mr. Harry Carter, a young boy named Tommy Pierce, and a Mrs. Lydia Horton. She also mentions the potential future death of a Dr. Humblebee, who does indeed die soon after. And then much later on in the story, we'll get the rather outlandish death of a chauffeur by what seems to be a falling stone pineapple. Serial killer hijinks. Hooray! (laughs) So the suspects, in that we find ourselves in a village that is our closed circle. So like any Christie closed circle mystery, it could be anyone. And there are a lot of people. First up, we've got Lord Gordon Whitfield, who is a tabloid newspaper baron who pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He was born to a working class family in the village. He's very proud of the fact that he had undistinguished origins and is now a lord. And he eventually buys the local estate and serves as a sort of town benefactor. Then we have uh, Miss Bridget Conway, who's Whitfield's former secretary. But hey, guess what? She's now his fiance. She's like a little bit of a witchy woman. Her hair flies up in the back of her head in the wind. Her cloud of black hair. Her cloud of black hair. That description may be repeated at least a half dozen times in the novel. Yeah, many times. (laughs) She's basically upfront about marrying Whitfield for money and position because she makes a much better salary as his wife than as a secretary. Also, that estate that he bought, that local estate, that's Bridget's ancestral family home. This novel is squarely a mystery. It's a puzzle mystery, but I think it has some of the proto-DNA of a Christie thriller. Mm-hmm. And Miss Bridget Conway is 100% our pert young heroine from the thriller mold. 
a little, a, a little bit soured, possibly. A little soured, it's true, but she's got the quips and she has the spunk. Right. And she's filling that role within the thriller model. Next up, we've got Mr. Abbott, who is the village solicitor, and he is unfriendly and rather stiff. He seems to be hiding something, as so many of these people seem to be doing. Then we have Mr. Ellsworthy, who's the village antiques dealer, uh, and he's suspicious. He has long hair. He's an outsider. He has sallow, almost green skin, which we're reminded of repeatedly. Yeah. Um, And he's basically thought to be a member of the occult and hold pseudo-Satan worshipping circles on top of the local hill. He's also described rather charmingly at one point as a Miss Nancy, which is one of Christie's rare direct allusions to the homosexuality of a character. It's basically stated that he is a gay man and very, very bad. This is a problematic characterization for me. We will discuss it more. Next, we have Miss Honoria Wainfleet, who is a local spinster. Formerly, her family was of Witchwood Under Ashes gentry, and her childhood home is now the local museum. So while Lord Whitfield has risen in the ranks over time, she has sunk over that same time. So the next we have the Reverend Mr. Wake, who's, as his name might suggest, the local reverend. And he's overseen, obviously, all the services for this vast number of locally deceased residents. Next up, we've got Dr. Thomas, who is the late Dr. Humblebee's partner in practice and who is also secretly on the verge of proposing to Dr. Humblebee's daughter, Rose. Then we have Mrs. Humblebee, the late doctor's wife, who's rather beyond herself. I think in grief and stress, we don't actually meet her until rather late, but it's very clear that something else seems to be wrong. Absolutely. And I suppose Rose Humblebee herself, in that she's a character who appears in this (laughs) village, could be a suspect. But other than her pretty air, she doesn't really figure into the story all that much. Right. Next up, Mr. Jones, who is Amy Gibbs, the maid's mechanic boyfriend. And then we have Major Horton, who's the late Lydia Horton's very put-upon husband. All right. Well, I mean, even for a Christie Close Circle novel, that was a lot of people. There are a lot of characters within Witchwood Under Ash. So let's talk about what happens in this village in the world as it appears to be. We open with Luke Fitzwilliam. That is our amateur detective in this mainly standalone novel. And he is a handsome young policeman recently back to England from the Mayong Strait. She seems to have just made up the name. It is suggestive of some place within South Asia that was under British colonial rule in 1939. Right. So he is back. He certainly did get a tan while he was overseas. That is mentioned, but only (laughs) once. And he's taking the train up to London when he ends up in a first-class carriage alone with an elderly lady who insists on talking to him despite his efforts not to engage. But he's a polite gentleman. And he finally lets her talk, and talk she does. When she discovers that he was a policeman, she gets even more excited and interested in talking about him because she says that she's going to London to go see someone Scotland Yard and report several murders. (laughs) And what she says is, a good many, I'm afraid. That's why I thought it would be best to go straight to Scotland Yard and tell them all about it. The opening of this novel is great. This novel, I think, has a great hook. You have to suspend your disbelief a little bit, but it's fun. Oh, yeah. The the first chapter with Luke and... um, Lavinia. Luke and Lavinia on the train is excellent. Um, If only... If only the rest of the novel held to that standard. (laughs) What she ends up telling Luke is, you see, she'd been suspicious for a while. 
But the the thing that has driven her to go to London is that she knows there's about to be another murder. And she is determined to stop it. It is not fair. She doesn't want it to happen. And this is the murder of Dr. Humblebee. And she knows that he's going to die because she could see it on the murderer's face. Luke somewhat condescendingly bids her adieu. He doesn't really believe her. And he continues on to his buddy Jimmy Lorimer's flat, which is where he's staying while he sorts out what the heck he's going to do now that he's back in England. And the next morning he reads a note in the paper saying that Miss Pinkerton was run down in Whitehall. She's dead. And he thinks, oh, well, that's unfortunate and moves on. But the next week he again picks up the paper only to see that in the village of Witchwood, which Miss Pinkerton did mention, so he knows that's where she was from, a Dr. Humblebee has died suddenly. So Luke gets alarmed and he tells everything to Jimmy, this whole serial killer story that Miss Pinkerton told to him in the in the train. And Jimmy thinks it sounds pretty crazy, but he seems very game for pretty much anything. So he's up to going along with it. And he remembers that he has a cousin in Witchwood and also that the town is famous for its witch hunts and its folklore about witches and just Satanism in general. There is a lot of allusions to Satanism and the devil and witches in this novel. Right. So they decide that Jimmy is going to get his cousin, Bridget, to put him up at Bridget's fiance's estate. And Luke is going to pose as a writer researching a book about folklore. And this way he can see if there's any truth to what Miss Pinkerton thought was going on in her village. Again, fantastic setup for an Agatha Christie murder mystery. I'm in 100%. You know what? It's a fantastic setup for any mystery, I think. Well, it's just knowing that Agatha Christie does this type of mystery so well. Mm -hmm. I was, as I was reading this, because I had no memory of this book, and I actually suspect I may not have read this book until I read it for this podcast. As insane as that is, I had zero memory of this book. And once we got here, I was like, this is the most amazing Agatha Christie book I've ever read. I, I, I'm in. I can't wait. It was this solid sort of Miss Marple-ish beginning with this Miss Marple-esque woman who then gets murdered. It's as if Miss Marple got murdered. I mean, not really. She's not exactly like Miss Marple, but it's just a, it's a great end. Then we meet Bridget. Yes, we, yeah, <laughs> right. And that's when I got worried. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of, all that optimism sort of goes mm. a little bit out the window. <laughs> Luke is immediately struck by Bridget and her, you know, witch flying hair, hair and her like Oof. pale, her pale inquisitive face. She helps him settle into this country house. It was once like a pretty staid um, manor house. And it's a little bit unclear exactly what Lord Whitfield did to it, but something hideous because it wasn't gussied up enough and a man wants his castle. (laughs) So this is basically how we're introduced to Lord Whitfield as somebody who defaces architecture. Which you know is a major demerit in Christie's book. I mean, that is a it's that is a, a serious character major, flaw. Major character flaw in my book, too. Lord Woodfield turns out to be an absolute blowhard whose primary interest is talking about himself. Anything that he can say about himself, he will you will start on any topic of conversation. He just picks it up and finds a way to remind everybody about something that he did. Luke sort of gets a lay of the land and he tells Bridget that he, you know, wants to interview the villagers in town about the folklore and the customs and tradition, especially regarding death. So Bridget leads him into town and immediately introduces him to Honoria Wainfleet, who Bridget has a feeling will want to talk to Luke 
Honoria was one of Lavinia Pinkerton's best friends. She also seems to be another Miss Marple-esque sort of character, mm-hmm. an acidulated spinster. Shout out to Caroline Shepard from Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So she and Lavinia were best friends, supposedly, and she also was the employer of Amy Gibbs, who is the maid who died, and that actually happened in Honoria's house. And it's also pretty obvious from the get-go that Bridget never for a moment believes Luke's story about being an author and doing a book on witchcraft. She knows that he just wants to look into these murders. <laughs> we find out that um, Amy died by swallowing scarlet hat paint from the bottle next to her bed. Um, and it seems as though she must have been reaching for the glass bottle of cough syrup. And that cough syrup was actually on the washstand. And on top of that, the door to her room was locked. Although it is possible to get into the room through the second story window from the outside. Luke demonstrates this and also is necessary to get to Amy when she was dying. This is one of the clearest depictions of any of the deaths we have of what exactly happened in it. So that's why Luke and Bridget go to the house. So Bridget and Honoria both clearly feel that there was something suspicious about Amy's death, which gives fuel to Luke's serial killer theory, and he hurls himself into the investigation with gusto. And here's where we are going to simplify matters a bit, aren't we, Catherine? We are. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to summarize the off-screen deaths as they were. Most of them precede the book. Some of them don't, but all of them happen not within the framework of the book. Go with us on this because, like Luke, we're operating on the basis of the notion that there is a serial killer actually at work in this village, even though there was no inquest. Right. None of them was perceived as a murder when it happened. So our first victim is Lydia Horton. Her death was a flare-up of ongoing gastritis, and she had been recovering rather well, sitting up, talking to visitors, eating food again, and then she very abruptly died. Suspects here, the most obvious one is, of course, her husband, who she bullied. She also had staff who she bullied, including Amy Gibbs, who's now dead. Um, And then she also had a beef with Lord Whitfield, with whom she had argued. There's also some suspicion thrown on Mr. Ellsworthy, who she had bought snake oil tinctures from. So the second victim (laughs) is Amy Gibbs. Uh, You know, as we said, her death was by old-fashioned hat paint in a locked bedroom. Suspects here are Mr. Jones, uh, her boyfriend, and I guess Lord Whitfield, who just fired her for being disrespectful. So it's possible that firing her wasn't good enough. Next up is Tommy Pierce. This is the boy, the nasty boy, who fell out of an upper story window when he was alone cleaning as penance to Lord Whitfield in the town museum. And the suspects here are pretty much everyone in the village because apparently this kid was awful. He just bullied and terrorized the entire town. Mr. Abbott, in particular, was recently seen having serious issues with him. Tommy used to work in his offices, and he may have seen something he shouldn't have seen. And then, obviously, given the fact that he was cleaning as a form of penance to Lord Whitfield, he certainly had his issues with Lord Whitfield as well. Right. And then we have our fourth victim, Harry Carter, the publican, and he falls drunkenly over the bridge. And as for suspects and motives, other than maybe his wife, everyone seemed pretty tolerant of him, even when he was drunk. Everyone except for Lord Whitfield, who had a fight with him on the same day that he died. Hmm, curious. Next up, Dr. Humblebee. He died of septicemia from a tiny scratch on his hand. The suspects and motives in this case, Dr. Thomas is more modern than Dr. Humblebee, and he may want to update the practice. Dr. Thomas also was trying to marry Humblebee's fetching daughter, and Humblebee was not cool with that. Humblebee also had recently been in a massive feud with Lord Whitfield over changes to the the town's water supply. Interesting. Hmm. 
Next victim. Miss Pinkerton. Our dear Miss Pinkerton, who was run down in Whitehall by a car that witnesses identified as a Rolls Royce. And which at least one witness identified with a plate number that at least the first numbers match that of the Rolls Royce belonging to Lord Whitfield. So Hmm. who are the suspects and motives for Miss Pinkerton? Well, I mean, there really isn't a suspect other than Lord Whitfield as a result of the car, since Miss Pinkerton is mostly a gentle old lady. The only person with a motive is whoever the serial killer, if he exists, is because she was headed to Scotland Yard. Hers is almost the it's the cover up murder. Right? It's, right. it's the murder because she because she suspected. Because she it's knew. not necessarily about her, it's about what she knew. Right. Then last we have Rivers, the chauffeur, and his death is the one by that decorative stone pineapple conned over the head, which resided uh, atop the gates to the Whitfield estate. Suspects and motives in this case, Lord Whitfield had been in a giant row with him earlier the same day, since Rivers had not only gone joyriding in the rolls, but had also pretty clearly been throwing back a few pints on the job. And it was a a pretty fierce argument. So by far, by far, the main suspect in that case is Lord Whitfield. Yeah, seems like we have a trend. Seems like we have a trend here. Lord Whitfield seems to be either at odds with or the main suspect involved in the murders of all of these people or most of these people. Right. So... The world as it actually is, Kemper. Might we be changing things up a little here? Yes, normally this is where we go step by step through our clues to get us to our resolution and to explain the world as it actually is. But because this novel, again, has the proto-DNA, I believe, of a thriller, Mm -hmm. it really doesn't work exactly like most of Christie's puzzle mysteries. We certainly can piece together what happened via the clues, and we will do that. But we think that it's simpler to talk about who the actual murderer is and kind of back end our way into it rather than doing it the way that we traditionally do. And I think that's because of the sort of linear way that this plot progresses, which is unlike the traditional Christie puzzle mystery. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we're the, the clues here are not... I'm not saying that she's not playing fair. She's playing a different game than is going on in a lot of the other books that we've covered. It's because if we went through all of the clues, so many of the clues go to one of any of the seven murders that we just detailed and who may or may not have done it. And Luke, as an amateur detective and not a very bright amateur detective at that, spends 85% of the novel dithering about all the various people who could have done it and the different ways they could have done it and the motives and the means. And it just doesn't get us to our ultimate solution, even though the clues for that ultimate solution are buried within the morass of red herring clues that we have. The majority of the novel is chapters dedicated to Luke writing down on paper who the suspects and who their motivations are. Right. Like really badly. I mean, we've seen Poirot do that or someone or Hastings or someone else do it for Poirot and Poirot novels to useful effect. What's kind of funny is that it shows what a bad detective Luke is when he does it because it's just a mess. (laughs) Well, and we get it. So in other novels, um, when we get a list or when we get that sort of delineation of the suspects, it's there for a reason, usually. 
It's meaningful. It's meaningful. Here it happens yeah. so many it's times not meaningful here. that it never, yeah, and it never matters. And it never matters. They're a red herring clue in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she. They're a meta red herring clue. We sometimes we talk about the meta clues in Christie, which we can draw upon as readers of other Christie novels. It's you kind of have to take Christie the of holistically. You can do that here too with the red herring clue of Luke's terrible, terrible lists. So Luke interviews every single potential suspect in the village, some of them multiple times. Bridget, as you just noted earlier, Kemper, is very quick to catch on that he is not a writer. And the the reason she brought him to Miss Wainfleet to begin with is that she doesn't think that there's a serial killer. But on the other hand, she's very suspicious about Amy's death. And why is she suspicious? Well, namely... Amy Gibbs, in 1939, seems unlikely to be, A, painting a hat, period, because hats are now so cheap that there'd be no reason to paint an old hat, and B, even if she was, she wouldn't be painting it in scarlet because she had red hair. A little bit of feminine intuition, Uh wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, giant wink, wink, like over-exaggerated, yeah. Bridget, she thinks that Miss Pinkerton and Miss Wainfleet also thought the same thing. And that they're all suspicious that there's something off with Amy's death. Because the murderer must not have known much about women's fashions to choose something so inappropriate and also out of date. And, you know, we've seen this clue before, more than once. Hat pins come to mind. Yeah, that was the Sunningdale mystery within the Partners in Crime collection where the murder by hat pin was seen as an old-fashioned nod and that women don't really wear hat pins anymore. Hats just fit over the head. So, yeah, everything about the Amy Gibbs murder is recycled (laughs) from previous Christie stories. I think very obviously. But in any case, Luke comes to the conclusion that the most obvious suspect in the murder of Amy Gibbs is Mr. Ellsworthy, primarily based on the fact that the man is creepy. But why (laughs) would he murder Amy? And for that matter, why would he murder any of the other victims? Luke's notion is essentially that all the victims found out more about his Satan worshiping and pagan bacchanals up on the hill. They just knew too much. Either that or just his overall weirdness and obsession with the occult has driven Ellsworthy to murder. And Luke breaks into Ellsworthy's home slash business and sees him come home late at night with a maniacal look on his face and his hands covered in blood. In between all this investigating, you wouldn't think that anybody would have much time, but Luke apparently has some time on his hands because he's decided that he is head over heels in love with Bridget, even if, you know, he doesn't actually uh, like her very much. Well, this reminded me, and it it will come back at the end, in a good way, but the romance reminded me very much of the man in the brown suit because there was a similar thing there where they hated each other, right. but there was a lot of physical chemistry, but I don't even like you and you're just a brute. And he thought she was a pain in the neck. We get that vibe here for much of the novel. We and do. it's tedious. It is. Uh, it <laughs> very is tedious. Very much so. But Bridget spurns him because she wants the house and that money. She's like, a, she's a woke gold digger. Yeah, she, yeah, she is. But I guess she comes around to his charms. Sigh. (laughs) Yeah, because she very abruptly shows up and tells him, you know what? Take all that back. Actually, I'm going to break off my engagement and I'm going to marry you. So at this point, Luke hears a little little old story from Miss Wainfleet about how she was once engaged to Lord Whitfield and how that engagement ended. 
Luke had been told that Lord Whitfield himself had broken it off and that there had been problems due to the fact that the Wayne fleets were far above Whitfield in status because, of course, at that time, Miss Wayne Fleet came from the landed gentry and Lord Whitfield was nothing. He was a member of the working class. But Miss Wayne Fleet tells him that really she was the one who broke off the engagement as she had this little canary and Whitfield in a peak had wrung its tiny neck. There's an awful little scene in which that happens within Sweeney Todd. For all of the horror that occurs in Sweeney Todd, mm-hmm. that's the part of Sweeney Todd that horrifies me the most. I'll always remember it. It's terrible. Ringing the bird's neck. Ringing the bird's neck. Just this tiny little sadistic moment. And she highly recommends to Luke that Bridget not tell Whitfield about the broken engagement until Bridget is far, far away. I.e. Bridget shouldn't inform Lord Whitfield that Bridget is breaking off her engagement to Lord Whitfield because she's worried that Lord Whitfield will lose it. Right. And perhaps wring her neck. Bridget tells him anyway because at the end of the day, she's actually been with him for two plus years, first as his secretary and now as his fiance. And she, you know, despite the fact that he only talks about himself, she, you know, thinks he's ultimately a fairly nice man. She goes and talks to him and he takes it rather well. And so she forces Luke to also have a conversation with him. Well, so they've also decided at this point that Whitfield is obviously the serial killer. <laughs> That's very much the direction that the book takes in the second half. It it becomes pretty obvious the way that that the wind is blowing here. He's the only person with consistent access to all these people, and more importantly, with what seemed to be consistent motives, in that all these people had beef with Lord Whitfield. And it's Whitfield himself who actually tells Luke that it's as though God is looking upon him because everyone who spurns Whitfield in some way dies, which is totally something that a delusional, crazy serial killer would say. And... He notes this about Bridget and Luke as well, basically almost saying like, well, sorry, but something bad is going to happen to you guys because God's on my side and you just wronged me. And Luke decides that this is a threat. I get it. Not not a very far leap at that point. Nope. And that this means they have to get Bridget into hiding in London. But then she more or less insists that she stay near Luke while he awaits the arrival of, wait for Superintendent it. Superintendent Battle. Superintendent Battle, who is coming along to Witchwood Under Ash to arrest someone. (laughs) Right. um, We should note that Luke has, at this point, gone up to Scotland Yard, where they, I guess, have believed him. Believed him enough to at least say, okay, we'll send someone to look further into this, because that sounds crazy. Right. So Bridget opts to take up Miss Wainfleet on her offer of staying with her for protection. And so Luke lays out his case against Whitfield to Battle. And Battle, you know, seems like maybe he's up too high a station to actually have come down there. But it's because the severity of alleging that a lord and a major newspaper proprietor is actually a serial killer is a pretty big deal. Yeah. But, you know, Luke lays out a pretty strong case, although mostly, I think, circumstantial evidence. In the meantime, uh, Miss Wainfleet asks Bridget to go for a little stroll. And then when they're well out of town, uh, 
<laughs> what does she try to do, Kemper? Oh, she tries to slit her throat and kill her because Miss <laughs> Wainfleet is the serial killer. She thought that she had poisoned, hence weakened Bridget right. uh, before this walk. But Bridget is a smart woman. When she insisted on staying in the town and staying with Miss Wainfleet, she already knew or had a sense of what was going on. And that's partially why she wanted to stay. She Because she's the one who knows Whitfield better than anyone. And she, she knows that he is a pacifist and that he would never kill a bird, much less ring its neck. So obviously if Whitfield didn't ring the bird's neck, that means Miss Wainfleet is lying about it and did it herself and also wanted everyone to think it had been Whitfield. In any case, Bridget fights her off barely until Luke realizes his mistake and hunts them down and gets there just in the nick of time. And then they have a lovely little button before we we close out uh, our novel. And of course, it's a romantic one. But this is where I think the, the novel at least is one half, maybe quarter step above the love story in The Man in the Brown Suit, since Agatha Christie at least has them admit that they like each other and that they could actually live a life together of affection and not just primal lust right? <laughs> essentially <laughs> so she's grown I mean honestly what I think it is is that this is Agatha Christie in her second marriage as to Agatha Christie in her first marriage she's a bit yeah, smarter per- well, a bit per- wiser perhaps you should actually like the person that you are planning on spending your life with in any case the novel ends on their perfect perfect bliss Let's talk about those clues. The first one, it goes back to the hat paint. I mean, that's the biggest clue in this story for, for two reasons, really. The assumption is that a man would be out of touch with women's fashions and then switch that in. But the other solution here is that perhaps an old woman who still paints her hats would be equally out of touch and also in possession of hat paint. And I think that the other thing to talk about with that clue is the fact that Bridget asks Luke to tell her verbatim what Miss Pinkerton said to him in the train. And she does that before going to Miss Wainfleet's house. Because what you will notice, if you go back and look at the first chapter, is that Miss Pinkerton never uses a gendered pronoun when talking about this. It is the assumption that a man would be out of touch with women's fashions, but it's also the assumption that if there's a serial killer, it has to be a man. Right. What, in fact, there is no indication of that. Yeah, I mean, I think also on the access issue, when we look at all of the people who were killed, there's really only one person who was difficult to access And that was Amy Gibbs because Lydia Horton had tons of people visiting her in her sickbed. Tommy Pierce was in a public place. He was in the town museum, which anyone could have gone into. Harry Carter was in uh, outside by the river. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Humbleby also visited a ton of people. He was all over the place. Miss Pinkerton was in London and Rivers the Chauffeur was outside of Lord Woodfield's estate, but also within a place that was easily accessible. Amy Gibbs is the only one who was found in a locked bedroom was technically accessible if you scaled a wall and like part of a roof you might have been able to get in but it's much simpler if someone just came in through the door and then used 
oh yes, the same trick that we just saw in Hercule Poirot's Christmas of taking these pliers, sticking them through the lock, and twisting the key closed from the other side mm-hmm. so that the door seemed to be locked from the inside. That is what Miss Wainfleet did. I don't know if I totally believe that she would have had the know-how to do that, but hey, she's a serial killer, so whatever. But that's the key murder where the access question is really difficult to answer for anyone else except for her. So access really turns out to be key here. And then, of course, motivation is the other major clue. And it's devious because we don't really figure out what the motivation is until the very end of the novel when we find out that Miss Wainfleet had been lying about who broke off her engagement, that it actually was Lord Whitfield who broke it off because he saw her kill this canary because she's crazy and she has insanity in her family. Of course she does. (laughs) Of course she does. She was always a very ambitious person and she has been thwarted in her life. She seems to be thwarted as a woman. She seems to be thwarted as someone whose personal fortunes were dwindling because of the family she came from. And she's also just a little crazy. So when he broke off the engagement with her, she resented it and then concocted this elaborate serial killing plan so that he would be sent to prison for life. And the murder of Bridget would, of course, have been... The coup de grace. Yeah, that would be Lord Whitfield slitting his fiance's throat after she just broke it off with him. And it was actually his own knife. It had his fingerprints on it. On that walk, she put her dainty old lady gloves on. I guess you could argue that we're given allusions to the fact that there could be more to Miss Wainfleet's backstory than there is, but it's very hard to see that within the muck of everything else that's going on with all of these various people in the town. And it comes as a surprise. It's not its not unfair or anything. It's just information that we're given at the very end of the novel. And to me, it reminded me a little bit of in the ABC murders, which was another serial killer story of Christie's where the motivation is the big mystery. And we ultimately find out that the serial killing was a means of obfuscation for the murder right. that actually counted. And here, the serial killing had a very specific reason, and it was to try to get someone else arrested and hanged for them. Right. I guess the serial killer is crazy, so it's hard to question the credibility of a serial killer's motivation. And I think I had a little bit of a problem with the motivation, even in the ABC murders, but I have a much bigger problem with it here. It does not ring true to me. She would have just killed him. Yeah, or tortured him in some other way or something like that. Yeah, this is so roundabout. The other thing about it is Luke never figures it out either. The only people in this story who figure out what the deal is are Bridget and Mrs. Humblebee, who was apparently known for a long time. Right. Mrs. Humblebee is the reason why Luke goes to run after Bridget because Dr. Humblebee had just been at Miss Wainfleet's house when he got his infected hand. She's suspicious of Miss Wainfleet the entire time. And of course, that's why she's been so distraught and upset because she can't, well, who is she going to say anything to? And that actually leads us to the one last thing that I would say as a potential clue, this idea that Miss Pinkerton can't possibly go to the local police because they won't believe her. It's partially we're led to believe because we're getting Luke's thoughts. It's because she's like a wacky old lady who just likes to fantasize about, you know, serial killers in her little village. But then it changes to, well, she can't go to the police because it must be a pillar of the community. Well, no, she can't go to the police because it is the least likely possible person that is doing this. So, yeah, of course they would look at her and say, uh... Come again? If we're looking at who is the least likely person to have 
done this, she really falls under that category. Right, and that should have knocked out Ellsworthy from the start, who, by the way, did have his hands covered in blood. It's just that it was rooster blood, Mm -hmm. and he and his occultist friends were sacrificing it. And I do just have to shout out, because we get the one final explanation of exactly how Miss Waynefleet did kill Dr. Humblebee which isn't clear until the end of the story. And I am going to make a stand here and say that it is by far the most vile, disgusting... Yeah, it's a super, super gross. <laughs> ...means of killing someone in any Christie novel. I know some people think of this novel because the death by falling stone pineapple is so outlandish, but for my money, it is the way that Miss Wainfleet <laughs> infected Dr. Humblebee's cut because we're told that Wonky Pooh, Miss Pinkerton's cat, who Miss Wainfleet at that point was taking care of, has an infected ear. So what Miss Wainfleet did is that she somehow brought about Dr. Humblebee cutting his hand. She then took the pus Ew. from inside Wonky Pooh's infected infected ear and ran that along the bandage that she then got for Dr. Humblebee, thereby infecting the cut so that he then died of septicemia, which was definitely not a surefire way of killing someone. But whoa, is that disgusting? Really, really Come on. Gross. It's like something that belongs in Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho or something. It is deeply, deeply unpleasant. Ew. Yeah. So thanks for that, Agatha. We should talk about the two adaptations mm-hmm. of this novel that exist because they are very, very different mm-hmm. and both of them interesting in their own ways. The first is a 1982 feature film starring none other than Olivia de Havilland and Helen Hayes. So Olivia de Havilland plays Miss Wainfleet, and this movie definitely suffers from the most famous person did it syndrome. <laughs> of an adaptation because I'm sorry no way Olivia de Havilland in 1982 is leaving her chic apartment in Paris to do an Agatha Christie adaptation unless she's the murderer yeah and unless they paid her (laughs) bank I would think I hope that they did the lady does not leave Paris unless she has to It's also funny because she's obviously supposed to be British in the adaptation, but she does that kind of old school golden age of cinema British-esque highfalutin accent. Lavinia came by with Wonky Pooh and asked me to watch him. And of course I agreed as I was just by the fire all that day anyway. I was coming down with this cold, you know. And Amy was in bed with her cold. Oh, yes. Dr. Humblebee came by to look in on her. Oh, dear. That must have been the last time I ever saw him alive. She just kind of has a fancy accent, which I love. I feel she was like, I'm Olivia de Havilland. I'm not doing a full-on British accent. You're just getting me. I'm sorry. (laughs) And then Helen Hayes plays the doomed Lavinia Pinkerton. And this is actually the movie that spurred the producers, who are Warner Brothers, and the Agatha Christie estate to put her into two Miss Marple adaptations, which we will get to in later episodes. She does a fine job. The movie is very faithful. The only big difference is that Luke Fitzwilliam is not a retired police officer, but instead he's an American computer scientist from MIT. And there is a lot of unintentionally hilarious, stuck-in-its-time tech speak. After yesterday, I decided it's much too complicated for us to figure out by ourselves. So, I am going to program everything we know about the murders into the computer, and it is going to tell us the name of the murderer. He's very (laughs) fond of talking about probabilities, and you can tell that there are a lot of script notes about Luke is a technical guy, and he thinks about things technically, and we need to make sure that that's clear. Now, come on. 
I'm the expert on probability, so don't tell me that Humblebee just happened to drop dead right on schedule. I'm not leaving till I find out what's going on around here. It's all very goofy. It's good. It gets the job done. It feels a little flat, like I think a lot of those early 80s Agatha Christie film adaptations do. Jonathan Price plays Ellsworthy, which is appropriate but he doesn't play him at all gay, and he's just vaguely druggy and a little bit weird. Nowhere near as weird as in the novel. The film dispenses with a lot of the occult allusions and the darker goings-on um, right. in the book. But you know what doesn't dispense with darkness is the Agatha Christie's Marple adaptation. No. And this one is from season four of that series, which was when Julia McKenzie took over. And she is definitely the actress within that series, both Catherine and I prefer. I do this so often and I'm going to do it again because our good friend Mark Aldridge so often nails in a succinct way what is right or what is wrong with so many of these adaptations and here's what he had to say about this one. An unwelcome peak of the series in terms of tastelessness. Although Murder is Easy had not originally featured Miss Marple, it was a natural choice for an adaptation as its country village murder shares many of the traits that are usually associated with mysteries investigated by the sleuth and so her inclusion is as well integrated as, as the series ever achieves. However, the resolution added to this production in which it is revealed that the murderer Honoria has been raped by her brother demonstrates a crass sensibility that would be difficult to stomach in the most sensitive of productions and is certainly not appropriate here as it is clearly inserted for impact rather than any plot reason. It is particularly unfortunate that this occurs because Shirley Henderson gives an excellent performance as Honoria, now a young woman rather than the spinster of the novel, which is rather overshadowed by the unpalatable resolution to the story. And I really think that's a perfect summation of everything that's wrong with this because the adaptation up until the end ending is pretty good. Yeah, it is. Benedict Cumberbatch as Luke. Hello. Hello. Uh, I don't really know anybody. Well, you do now. I'm Luke Fitzwilliam. How could you not love an adaptation with a young, spry Benedict Cumberbatch? It's a pretty grounded adaptation. Everyone else in it is good. It's very well acted. It looks good. But that ending is just, it's so deeply unpleasant. If I'd reported it, they would have put him away. But if I didn't, I was... Afraid he would defile me again. It's inappropriate in a Christie mystery. And her her brother is also mentally challenged as well. That mm-hmm. was part of the whole horrible backs. It's just it's just so unpleasant. I also didn't appreciate, by the way, they kept the hat paint clue, but they did not, as the book does, acknowledge how old fashioned that clue is and the fact that something weird is going on there. The adaptation doesn't, even though it's dating the story later and, and putting it in nineteen fifty five. I know, it makes it an even weirder. Ridiculous. Yeah, it makes it an even weirder it makes it clue to not clue. Yeah. Those are our adaptations, and now let's get into the rankings for this one. Let's talk about some plot mechanics. Most of it, as we said before, is Luke sitting with notepad, pondering which of these people could have done it. I'm just going to come out and say it. I think that the plot mechanics are abysmal here, because this is not Christy weaving an ingenious plot. This is, again, Christy telling a thriller-esque story that does have a puzzle mystery in it. It's not like it's not there, but she's not telling it in the way that she usually does. She's not laying the clues in there in the way that she normally does, which is why we couldn't even break it down as we normally do these puzzle mysteries. It's primarily because there's not actually an investigation happening. Right, because Luke is so bad that he's not Mm -hmm. actually investigating. He's just dithering for 200 pages, and then Bridget figures it out. And Mrs. Humblebee gets out of her depressive funk from her husband having been murdered and and tells tells him. 
what's going on. Right. She's absent for most of the book. I think you came out somewhere around a five. I want to give it a four. That's I think fine. It deserves That's a fine four. with me. I was I was okay. trying to be kind. Okay. I do also want to say the Mrs. Horton murder. She is murdered by way of arsenic, and I only bring that up because. That is the titular murder within this wonderful book a fan of the podcast turned us on to called A is for Arsenic by Catherine Harkup. And it is fantastically detailed and geeky. This book is all about Christie's use of poisons and it goes through the alphabet and A is for arsenic is the first one. There's a breakdown of that specific murder and murder is easy. But before that, there are pages and pages of the history of arsenic and then how arsenic works as a chemical compound within the body and does its dastardly deed of poisoning. And there's so much fun information in this book. Well, we're on the subject. I'll also mention there's a a really delightful book from mid 2000s called The Poisoner's Handbook that's nonfiction. Mm. It's about forensic medicine and identifying poisoners and mostly mostly it's about uh, murderesses at the turn of the century. I love it, a good turn of the century murderess. Do you think that murderess is becoming a politically incorrect term, just like actress has? Have you heard this whole thing of how we shouldn't say actress anymore? We yes. should just say female actor or just actor? Should we be saying female murderer or just murderer? I know, but it's more, <laughs> it's more fun to talk about the black widows as murderesses. Murderesses. Of, yeah. No, murderess has such a bite to it. I agree. It's a fantastic word. And then pluckerability is actually where I think... This novel does the best in any of these categories, but I say that with the caveat that I think this novel does really badly in all categories because I still have a problem with the notion that someone as psychotic as Miss Wainfleet has to be in this book wouldn't have just killed Lord Whitfield or done something more directly painful to him than this elaborate scheme of pinning murders on him. It just doesn't ring true to me. I think it's weak. It's the supervillain problem. In James Bond. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah. why did you create like a Rube Goldberg device when all you really had to do was... Was shoot him. Yeah, shoot him. It's true. And that's part of the fun. And I know it's part of the fun of puzzling out these mysteries. I would go with a five, maybe. I think I would go with a five, too. It's not egregious. This isn't murder in Mesopotamia where a woman's marrying the same man twice. This isn't one of the more ludicrous thrillers where people are just sort of acting not as humans would act, like Seven Dials mystery or Why Didn't They Ask Evans. But it's not great. We did a five for three-act tragedy, which has a very similar problem, actually. The convoluted. Yeah, this is a whole lot of convolutions here to affect the yeah, ends I that mean, you want. I will say that from from a motivation standpoint, I think that this is totally credible. I can completely understand Miss Wainfleet stewing in resentment for 30 years at this guy who then buys up her family home. If this had been a more standard puzzle mystery in which one or two or maybe even three people were killed. Yes. And, it, and that was the reason why I would be giving this like an eight. Because I think that's totally valid and legitimate. And I actually think that the scene in which Miss Wainfleet talks about her frustration with her life is one of the better character moments within the story. And I 100% believe it. And I think it's it's interesting. But, but then she's a crazy serial killer. Exactly. Because yeah. then her family was insane. And she's killed like seven people. It's right. crazy. It's just not. But but if it had been a little bit more restrained, I would buy it a lot more. Right. So that's, that's what that's what brings it down for me. Okay, so five on that. Then series-long characters, yes, this is technically 
a superintendent battle novel, but he comes into the book really like a handful of pages before the book ends. Right. He's maybe, maybe in 10 pages, if that. I don't even know if he's in that many. But even when he's in it, he's barely on the page. I mean, his presence is as close to nil as I think it could possibly be for an official detective within a mystery novel. Yeah. I don't even know that. Like, I'm like loathe to even count it. I know. I think here's what we can do. I would give it a pretty low score, but the fact is I actually would, and I think this is where we disagree a bit. I think that the characters within this novel are with one or two exceptions are fairly terrible also. So if we can perhaps come to a number that makes sense for battle plus everyone, we can just kind of count it twice. Cause I agree. We should almost treat this as a standalone and just count the book specific characters twice. Cause it's really right. not a superintendent battle novel. If we do treat it as that, I mean, I think it gets a three or a four. Right. I think that we should just figure out one flat score. Well, I'll be honest with you for the book specific characters and I'm willing to go up on this a bit, but I came out initially on a three. Really? <laughs> you were a bit higher on this. I mean, here's here's why. I think that as with many of the plot elements here, every character to me felt like something that we've seen before. Didn't feel very fresh. I mean, Luke Fitzwilliam, start, let's start with him. That's a character we've seen before in Christie. Hercule Poirot's Christmas started with a man abroad traveling on a train, musing about how different England is from where he was. The case of the discontented soldier in Parker Pine was very much a similar thing of a man coming back from overseas and being a little bit at odds with with what he was going to do with his life. He didn't spring off the page for me. Mr. Ellsworthy is a caricature. He is essentially a figure of fun, as our friend John Kern would say, meaning that Christie is, and we can make the argument that it's, that it's the characters within the book, so it's the people around him who are ostracizing him and making fun of him, and also kind of scared by him, since he is apparently a man who actually sacrifices roosters. It's not like he's innocent here. But he, to me, felt like a caricature of a mincing, othered gay man who's just dangerous and a bad lot. I mentioned already Bridget and her long black hair flying straight up in the wind like a witch's over and over and over again. I did not enjoy her. I did not think she was a particularly well-drawn pert young heroine. Gordon is another man-child who needs a mother instead of a wife, a la David Lee in Hercule Poirot's Christmas, which we just read. We've seen that character other times beyond that. And then the real thing that I really just loathed was the romance. Well, that's the biggest, it's the biggest problem with this book. Of all the many problems, the romance uh, doesn't work at all. Oh, it's awful. And I have no problem with Christy infusing her puzzle mysteries with a little romance or sometimes a lot of romance. It's actually quite charming when she does it well. Sometimes she does it lightheartedly as in Man in the Brown Suit, although also problematically. Other times she does it in a really dark way, a la Death on the Nile, which is quite Mm -hmm. masterfully done. It's just done badly here. I don't for a second believe about them, but even more damning, I don't care. I don't care because neither of them seem like real people to me. And I know exactly what's going to happen from the second they meet. It's telegraphed from the beginning and it's just bad. The bigger problem might be that neither character is likable. That's something that I I hate saying it. I hate that those words just came out of my mouth (laughs) because there are plenty of 
wonderful books that I love that don't have quote-unquote likable characters. They're the two people that you're supposed to be rooting for in this. You're supposed to be rooting for them both on an investigative level and then also on a romantic level. And I'm sorry if you have no affection for the characters at all. And it doesn't even seem like Christy does. Agreed. No, it feels like she's phoning it in. In comparison to certain other things, I mean, I think that pretty much most of the town is actually relatively well fleshed out. It's, It's why I'm less harsh on this in that I did feel that even if they were repetitive characters, they all did have a distinct personality to them. They're clearly See, to me, they felt very, they felt very either cookie cutter or superficially drawn. All the townspeople I didn't mention as not particularly caring for, like Mr. Abbott, the solicitor, I could barely tell you anything. He's supposed to be one of the main suspects in this. I honestly... I couldn't even tell you. Yeah. I don't know why I always come back to it, but... The Sidiford mystery, which we apparently really liked a lot, but the Sidiford mystery had all those little cottages and all the people living in the cottages, and they were so well drawn, and I can still think of exactly who was in each cottage. I don't think I could name – I couldn't name them, but I I know who they are. And I just don't feel that way about the people in this village. I think as a whole, the village feels like a Christie closed circle, small country village. She's certainly capable of drawing that in her sleep and she does it well. But the people within it, I think she's done so much better in other novels. Yeah. I mean, I don't think a three is fair. I could do a four and a five. Yeah, I think fine. when we're taking superintendent battle into account as well, not wanting to discount so much for the fact that it technically is a battle book, I think a four and a five so that we're looking at a nine overall out of a possible 20. That's fine. Feels okay to me. Why don't we do a four for battle and a five for the characters? Because you're right. I think maybe I'm being overly harsh. It's certainly not a three. No. And then we come to tone and setting. Here's where I come down on this. I actually really really liked the setting. I thought it was very descriptive. I thought like even the descriptions Mm -hmm. of like the museum were really interesting. I liked the commentary on the, you know, changing face of the village and the architecture choices. I liked the depiction of the antique store. All of those things I thought were really specific and good. Um, The tone is not good. So the tone is terrible. We talk about how Christy runs a tight ship narratively. There's not a word spared to Mm -hmm. her plot and her construction, this book does not follow that model. This is a loose ship. Yeah, we've seen this before where they're like filler books. My theory, which is based on absolutely nothing, is given that and then there were none comes right after this one. She was coming up with and then there were none for a really long time before she actually wrote it. It took a lot of planning. The planning was almost the hardest part. And I wonder if a lot of her authorly wherewithal was not devoted to the imminent plans that she had for And Then There Were None while this one was being written. Again, theory based on nothing. Maybe, I don't know. How do you feel about like a five for setting and tone? I think a five is fair on setting and tone because I agree with you. I think that the setting is pretty good. But the writing style just, it feels flat. This is one of her third person novels that really felt flat and airless to me in in the way that it was written. Okay, so five on that. And then we come to Stuck in His Time. And I think other than the argument I'm going to make about Mr. Ellsworthy, I think this book does really well because this is one of hers that's set in an English village. So there are no non-English people. There are no Jewish people. (laughs) And so it's actually really interesting because we've mentioned this book before, but a friend of the podcast, Jamie Bernthal, who wrote Queering, Agatha Christie, not surprisingly has a lot to say 
say about this novel when it comes to depictions of othered characters within Christie. He actually compares Ellsworthy's characterization to Shaitana's in Cards on the Table. And I think that might have been the last time that we mentioned Jamie's book. And that's also a problematic characterization. Jamie writes here, he says, the light introspective irony with which Shaitana is sketched is lighter still in the presentation of Ellsworthy. His othering is not questioned or subverted. Instead, at this important moment in the buildup to an inevitable Second World War, Christie depicts these others as unknowable and therefore threatening. And while we could give her the benefit of the doubt that she's depicting the way that the other townsfolk see Ellsworthy when he's described as a Miss Nancy, I, I wasn't feeling any sort of authorial distance from that. He's a nasty character, and the de- his depiction felt a little nasty to me and had a tinge of homophobia, quite honestly. And we do see that every now and then in Christie. We saw it in Lord Edgeware Dies. We will see it again, and I think we will see Christie actually doing much better with the depiction of gay characters in some books to come, and we will be talking about that. But I would just take off one deduction for that. That's fine. Okay. All right, so our grand total for Murder is Easy comes to 4 plus 5 plus 4 plus 5 plus 5 minus 1. 22 points, putting this novel in fifth to last place. This placement makes a lot of sense because Murder is Easy is now officially the lowest ranked puzzle mystery with a non-exception being made for the big four. So basically our bottom five right now are Murder is Easy, Why Didn't They Ask Evans, The Seven Dials Mystery, The Big Four, and The Secret of Chimneys. And then right above it is The Mystery of the Blue Train as now the second lowest ranked puzzle mystery. Yeah, that works for me. Doesn't that work? Yeah, I think think that actually makes a lot of sense. So not one of our favorites, but not our least favorite either. Well, that is Murder is Easy. And I actually am going to make a request here, Catherine, because there is reference made within the town of Witchwood under Ash to the inn, the Bells and Motley. Mm-hmm. That's the inn right. where, the, where our poor publican worked, who was then thrown into the river by Miss Wainfleet. And at the Bells and Motley happens to be our next Mysterious Mr. Quinn short story. Well, look at that. So look at that. So I think that we have to do that as our next short story. I guess we have to. It's apparently written in the stars. It's kismet. (laughs) And spoiler, there's no connection to be made between those two inns slash pubs. That story does not take place within Witchwood, but clearly she likes the name. So we will go back to the Bells and Motley next week in the the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection. And then our next novel, of course, we just want to note once more, is And Then There Were None, which has many, many, many film adaptations. So if you are gearing up in advance for that one, I suggest that you start cracking on your Netflix accounts, your iTunes downloads, your YouTube streaming, or what have you, because there is a lot of material to get through on that front. You can always reach out to us, email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Reach us on Instagram at allaboutagatha. Rate and review us. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening to this podcast. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.